0: Begin with the end in mind as such. So like, well, how much money do we need to generate for a year? And then you work your way back. So if we want to generate, you know, 150000 dollars in profit, you know, we're going to pay 30% tax on that. And then so what's our gross product gotta be? Income gotta to, gotta to be for the year to, to give us a profit left over. Um and that's a it's sort of flipping the modern budgeting on its head in a lot of ways, but it seems to work really well because usually we, you know, we get we're happy with what's left over, but we actually put it around the other way and say, all right, oh, well, let's write our profit target up on the wall and say, well, this is what we're aiming for. How are we gonna construct that um, working, working our way backwards?
2: G'day, welcome back to The Regenerative Journey and welcome uh, to Angelica's office again. We're back, a little echoey perhaps, but um, a good place to be sitting, enjoying late afternoon sunsets, or oh, excuse me, and a lovely cup of tea. Um, before I introduce uh, our guest in this second in betweener episode, um, uh, put together by, sponsored by and, uh, <laughs> and, and involving Highland Beef in the form of Murray Richardson. Um, I'm going to yabber on just quickly. Don't press that, get your finger off that 30-second jump button. Um, I just do want to mention <clears throat> the wonderful movie Rachel's Farm. Um, Rachel Ward is the producer-director. I won't say actor because he wasn't really acting. I don't think it was fair income. It's a documentary <coughs> about her journey, a regenerative journey, uh, with her farm that she'd had for many years um, uh, on the sort of central coast of New South Wales or north coast. I don't know where you'd kind of – where you'd put her in the <coughs> in a regional kind of a context. Um, but lovely farm, a wonderful woman, and she has um, – uh, in I think it was like a month ago, maybe five weeks ago, released – Rachel's Farm, fantastic. It's showing all over the place at the moment, cinemas doing sort of special community showings and panel sessions and all sorts of cool stuff. So if you haven't seen it, please get yourself a ticket, find a venue, get yourself a seat, do whatever you need to do to get your um, eyes and ears all over that film, um, Rachel's Farm. It's, it's, a, it's wonderful. Um, uh, just her journey, <clears throat> the trials and tribulations, some challenges she had and successes, I dare I say, um, that um, as a result of changing some practices on the farm, was awesome. <coughs> Talking about changing practices, <coughs> I did receive. I'm not sure if I've mentioned this in a previous episode intro or maybe on in, in social media. <coughs> I'm losing. Excuse me, I'm losing track of all the stuff. Uh, is I'm really interested to know Jess Collier, who um, Bruce and Jess and their two boys they were here about this time last year, actually September, October, November, did three months stint with us, which is so handy. We were fencing, we were lambing, all those sorts of crazy stuff, landmarking. marking, and they were just amazing to be here. <clears throat> just not as not as people to help us, but as people, um, the vibe they brought and the um, their interest, and you know they're they're all on a journey of themselves. So, um, but Jess kindly. Um, sent me a text the other day, and she just said, you know, uh, I guess she was saying, in essence, how much she got out of the um, the podcast, the interviews. One in particular, Cindy O'Meara, um, because of that, she said that she went and did her some training, some <clears throat> did a course with Cindy, and now she's um, essentially, uh, dare I say, a practising nutritionist, um, I think I'm right in saying that. I'll have to go back to the text. But nonetheless, she was inspired by the interview. Ch- you know, when we did the course, has changed her life somewhat in that now she is really, from what I understand, um, enjoying this, this, this direction, this skill, this experience she's gaining, um, all due to the interview that um, she heard uh, of Cindy Amira <coughs> on the regenerative journey. So that's somewhat inspired me to put out to the world, to you, the listener. Um, I would love to hear your story, your 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 kind of um, your tale. Not too exhaustive in terms of length, but just sort of a, You know, Jess's was a paragraph or so. I'd love to know how, if there's particular interviews <clears throat> you've heard. I know another example is Shuri Gooding. Um when I interviewed Nico Ploughman, that sort of inspired her to, to find someone and, and do some transcendental meditation, which she now does, and she did, and <clears throat> it's awesome. So that's another example. Uh if you have an example of an interview you've heard, you're inspired to contact that person, read their book, do their course, change your life because of that interview, because of the inspiration and the motivation you got from that, I'd really love to hear it. <clears throat> and maybe that's an email to um, contact the Charlie Arnott on our website. It could be um, um, DM me um, on Instagram or Facebook. You could—that's <clears throat> probably the easiest place to do it. Or if you've got my—if you've got my some some of you have my my mobile number, text me. Um, I'd really love to hear it. And it's you know I guess it's not like oh it'll help me decide whether to continue the regenerative journey. That's not what I'm talking about here. I just love to understand the impact it's making, it is, it, would, it is motivating for me to hear that. <clears throat> it does make it all worthwhile, absolutely. And, you know, there might be some stories in there that would be, not worthy is, that, is the wrong word, but it'd just be interesting to maybe interview you um, with your story. You know, you're, and it may, an interview would probably be more than just tell me the story about doing a course and being inspired. It would be about your life, so um, no guarantees about who it is and you know how many I'll do. But I just thought that'd be a lovely thing to sort of almost close the loop in some ways. They've heard the story, they've been inspired, they've done their thing, and then they get themselves on the interview on on the on the podcast. It'll be for season eight next year, um, but that gives you plenty of time to prepare. Um, But I wouldn't muck around if you've got a story to tell me. Uh, you got a text to send me, you've got an email to send me, you've got a DM to send me, just do it in the next, you know, as soon as you hear this, do it that day, that week, whatever. It's awesome to start collecting some of those. We'll put them on file, we'll work out what to do with them, but you know, I might post a few on Instagram or socials and that sort of thing because that's just a lovely, lovely thing to hear and understand and know. That's probably enough for me. Michael Gordon. Oh, hang on. Oh, no, just a little sign came up on my machine here. I hope it's still going. It is, it is. Um Michael Gooden, <clears throat> he was interviewed by myself and Murray Richardson not so long ago. You'll be hearing this in <clears throat> in a minute or two. The interview. Uh, Michael's down near Wagga, so west of Wagga. He is fantastic. He's been working with RCS. He's been a client. He's a he's a, one of their one of their one of the on the team, the RCS team. <clears> he <throat> actually came here for a job interview. I'm in the very room that we sat and interviewed Michael. My, he, he reminded me the other day. It was 2014, I think it was 2015, 2014. And um, Michael, funny—I might—I might even talk about it. On the, actually, I'll leave it because I think I, I think I referenced it in the interview. It's quite a funny story. Um, so I've known Michael for some time now, and um, uh, more more recently through some RCS engagements and events and that sort of thing. He doesn't live all that far away, but a few land uh things that um, <clears throat> we've attended locally. And we sat down with him and had a good chat to Michael about. Um, about risk about farming, about enterprise, diversity, about his you know his life uh, and just really stoked to to have Michael on the show. I will probably this might have been a bit of a test run for a proper interview because this is um, not that it's not a proper interview, it's just a bit shorter and a <clears throat> bit too, bit more to the point uh, being a highland beef kind of in between or episode but um, anyway, enough of that, enough of me let's get on to Michael Gooden uh, on the regenerative journey. Uh, g'day, welcome back to the Regenerative Journey. And today, for one of our in-between episodes, Highland Beef sponsored episode, uh, we have Murray Richardson uh, again. Um, we we're just saying before earlier that today, um, you, the listener and viewers, will be watching, listening, watching this uh, this a uh, few weeks after the re- recording. But um, Stuart Austin's um, interview that we had uh, with him uh, came out today, which has been met very well uh, by listeners. Uh, Murray, welcome. Back. Good, Charlie. Yeah, good to be here, Tom. <clears throat> and you're at the farm at, at the moment? Yeah, no, up in Tenderfield,
3: very warm Tenderfield, unfortunately. It's uh, not much rain about, and it's pretty dry, but no, it's beautiful here, yeah. Grass growing? Not yet, no. So yeah. unlike Michael, we're, uh, we're probably holding on at the moment, but uh, we're all keen to see what's going to happen in the next four to six weeks, let me tell you. Mm
2: well, i'm I'm keen to see what's going to happen in the next forty minutes um when when we get chatting with with our guest today, Michael Gooden, um Michael, uh, welcome to the regenerative journey this is this is potentially a bit of a primer for when I actually do get to sit down with you for a proper interview.
0: Oh, my pleasure, Charlie. Yeah, it's um
2: yeah nice to be invited. This may well be the the interview that decides whether we do sit down or not. So this is the <laughs> so this you're... is the
0: job interview, yeah. <laughs>
2: Well, talking about job interviews, can I just mention that we've done this before if it's a job interview? That's exactly
0: right. Yeah, that's, yeah, that's, a, that was, I didn't really mean to do that, but anyway,
2: we have, yeah. But for listeners and viewers, I first met Michael um, across a table at Hannah Minnow um, some years ago. I can't remember how many years ago that is now. It was, it was, it was uh,
0: 2014, Charlie. I remember it distinctly.
2: 2014, uh, Michael was going for the, the, our um, manager's, um, farm manager's role. Um, we had a lovely interview, and um, I actually gave Michael a job, and he said, "No, thanks." <laughs> <laughs> yeah,
0: well, it's which just you're... one of those circumstances that the universe <laughs> wasn't at the right place at the right time.
2: No, so, I totally. So. I, no, no, no. I'm not saying that. There we go. It was actually, it is. It, it's one of those things that you, it you. I keep being reminded of it for various reasons that you keep looking back on moments which you thought were. You know, not not satisfactory at the time, but but at the time they were they were the, they were the perfect thing. And not to say we wouldn't have had you or would have been a bad outcome, but um, you know you've gone on to do amazing things, and and um, and and we're we're doing okay too. So no, lovely to have met you back then, and we we keep st- we keep connecting, which is fantastic. So let's we'll connect a bit more now, um, Murray. Do you want to open? <clears throat> I, I I threw that at you the, the, oh, the other day. I've done enough talking. Um well, well, maybe Michael actually opens with a with his bit of a bit of a bit of a brief um uh, cV you know where you are now, um how you got there and um, what what you're doing just to just to put you into context
0: yeah, thanks Charlie. well, yeah, so i my wife and I farm uh, our property which is located seventy kilometres west of Wagga uh, in the Riverina. arena uh, three young kids. Um, it's a, yeah, I'm sort of fourth, fifth generation farmer in that area. Um, we run all beef cattle there. Um, it, the part, property that we run was part of a family operation and we sort of started running that on our own in about 2010. Um, yeah, I wear a few other hats. So I do some work with RCS. I'm on the board of Vic No-Till and the Land of Market Australia, and um, yeah, done a few other jobs. Like that around the traps, and I'm also doing some work with Highland Pastoral uh, as well, so that sort of yeah keeps me in the loop um, and fingers in a lot of different pies. Um, yeah, we run a grass fed beef uh, Angus cattle stud, and um, yeah, sort of probably practicing what I'm preaching is really where I find you know I can be coaching and teaching people what to do, but also we've got to be making sure that we're doing those things in our own business. So if there's something that I want to Trial or work out will we do it ourselves, and then if it works we'll we'll get other people to do it if it doesn't we'll <laughs> hopefully we haven't told too many people
2: well that can be a bit unique in the uh, advisory space, can't it like you know there's there's plenty of farm advisors who have had you know somewhat limited um ex- you know hands on experience and and <clears throat> excuse me, and if they have, they may not be sort of still I- experiencing that at the at that time of, of you know being an advisor might have been in sort of a previous life or, almost. So you being um, sort of, as you say, practising what you're preaching, um, doing it hands out, you know, um, doing it, you know, your, your hands are in the soil, um, you're in the yards, you've got cattle on hand and you're engaging with them and nature and people. So it's a really, um, it's a wonderful um, combination. Murray, do you want to, um, uh, excuse me, hit Michael up with a with a first question?
3: Yeah, well, look, um, look thanks, Charlie, and thanks, Michael, for. Um, Lending us your time. We really appreciate that. And um, it's it's great to see that we've got a good season down there, which is exactly what we need, mm-hmm. place, you know, a few cattle, which is good. Um, the thing that I suppose we're, you know, keen to try and sort of tease out tonight is, well, uh, you know, most businesses or most agricultural businesses, you know, they are multi-pronged. They've got lots of different things happening, and they need to do that because essentially, even though we'd love to say it's not, um you know, driven by commodity prices, the reality is it you know that that is the general driver, and there's lots of influences all around the world domestically, um you know plenty of things happening and it you know, and we I suppose have tried to develop a different model that essentially says you're gonna we can be a significant part of your business, we know we're never going to be everything to everyone's business but certainly offering some, some genuine alternatives. And I think that's what we're really keen to try and sort of chat a bit about tonight is, well, what are some of those alternatives, either more traditional alternatives or alternatives like ours? And how do you really sit back and evaluate that? Because, you know, most farming businesses are, uh, you know, they're, they've got an, an incredible asset base, they're generally time poor, that you know, they, they can be constrained from time to time capital-wise. How you actually genuinely get out and interface with a market is really complex. And you've got to put a lot of faith in third parties sometimes to actually really understand what those opportunities are. And so it's, you know, and of course, if you're the way markets move today, by the time you're listening to something, it's yesterday's news. So how do you really... Think about building, um, I suppose a, a, I'll say more diverse. That might be a way of putting it. How do you you look at building a more perhaps more diverse, more robust business structure that you can actually be more um, confident of getting better returns out of? And that's and look, there's lots. Of, you know, there's no simple answer to that because the answer to that is going to vary over the seasons, right? Because obviously you know, um, some some activities will be better in some times than than others. But it's really just about trying to uh, tease out that notion of, okay, well, how do you sit back, find the time to actually evaluate those alternatives?
0: Well, I'm glad we've only got 40 minutes for the answer, Murray. That's good.
3: (laughs) Sorry. Sorry, Michael.
0: No, no, well, it's a great question, though. And I suppose, like, reflecting on this, First and foremost, it's about understanding that you know probably listeners of this podcast we're wanting to manage things holistically. So if we're thinking about from a you know RCS perspective, we're trying to balance a three-legged pot. If you've got your yeah. holistic management hat on, your um, you know is this action leading me towards that the that context that you're operating in? Um, you know what's the weakest link in that um, chain? Um, you know if you if you're thinking about um, natural intelligence, you know, what's my gut feeling with this decision that I'm making? What What are you trying to achieve? So I think with any decision that you're making, you've got to be really clear about what you're trying to do. Um, yeah. This The scary world of finance and return on assets and, you know, generating wealth creation is, uh, has got, um, isn't often thought of holistically in terms of what's going to be, uh, you know, in markets, like for instance today, the you know Commonwealth Bank returned ten billion dollar profit with a B. Um, mm. You know it'd be great on their balance sheet if it said, "and the uh, and the happiness of our employees is has improved by ten points, and also the land uh, and the businesses that we're financing is improving as well." Um, so I think probably for me, and that's the caveat up front is that. Measuring a return on an asset or you know how to make a financial decision is really only one, one part of any decision that we're making. And so for us in our business, that's first and foremost is we're, we're really juggling that all the time. Of this. And there can be compromises between an economic profit and then what's going to be best for, for me as a person in terms of workload, lifestyle. Um, you know how many hours in the day, and then also you know what's that? What impacts that kind of have on our environment and and socially in our community? So, it's not a clear cut answer. Um, the, I suppose from a pure financial perspective, some of the things that I feel are really important. Um, firstly, is to be able to do like management accounting on your business, so being aware of where your position is and the crux of that is probably knowing what your cost of production is. So in a beef business, it's like, what does it cost us? Like, how many tonnes of beef do we generate, produce a year on an average year? Or what are we budgeting on doing in the in the next financial year? And then what's it going to cost us? So we know, um, and if our cost of production, and this is the thing that we're sort of seeing in businesses at the moment, is it's a bit scary because, um, you know, we had a couple of good years, everyone you know, increases their spending on various things, um, and the cost of production goes up. And, you know, this time last year, uh, you know, I could have like feed years steers were worth closer to six dollars and now they're, you know, three dollars fifty. So that that cost, if if that if your cost of production is four dollars a kilo at the moment, um, you're in a world of pain. And so knowing what that is is really important. Um and, you know, so doing some analysis on your business, understanding what your gross margins are, um, and and where you can um, what levers you can pull to manipulate that, it's really important.
3: Michael, when you you know it, it's interesting, isn't it? When you when you talk about those those various sort of um, considerations, whether whether you're thinking about it holistically, just financially, or whatever, I mean. How do you actually how do you prioritize those or do you pro, or is the does the priority change with time or with the circumstance or the season?
0: Well, I think yeah at different times you've got to prioritize different things so um you know from a production perspective um you know if you there's a time of year when you probably need to be putting on weight on animals like you know if you're finishing animals um there's a time when you probably need to be having the animals as number one in your grazing um, management. And then there's other times of year when you might be in landscape mode. um, And so you're you're using your animals as a tool to improve the ecological outcome. I think the nuance in a well-managed grazing business is to actually, you know, have through good land management and good animal management, have those things lined up. So, you know, for us in the Riverina, you know, we carve in July, August. Um for we have a very tight carving and we use our animals like we get good growth in time. Um and we join our cows, you know, when we traditionally have good quality feed. And then, you know, come autumn time when we traditionally don't have good feed, we're weaning calves. Our cows run well, I had a client the other day say, Oh, do you want your cows to run on the sniff of an oily rag? And I said, Well, actually I don't want even the oil, I just want the rag. So we just want our cows to be able to run as lean as we possibly can um, they're back in calf um, you know ecologically that works out really well because we traditionally have that drier bulkier feed that they can chew their way through um, if we've got a smaller area of higher quality feed for some leaners to go on to that's good um, but yeah and so that's overlapping um our grazing management is overlapping with our financial management and so for us, like the most important thing that we do is our grazing chart um, and because that basically flows into cash flow because we know if we've got grass, then it's about converting that into, into money. So if we don't have grass, well, then it's really hard to convert nothing into cash. Um, if we've got grass, then we've got the ability to be able to convert that into, into cash flow. Um, so, yeah, that, those grazing principles um, really mirror our cash flow as well.
2: Michael, just to sort of, <clears throat> I guess, in riding the the commodity market um, through a twelve month period, with as you just alluded to, you know, in the last twelve months, it's gone from probably market highs to you know lows that we haven't seen for some time, and it's certainly not the bottom of the market's ever been, but certainly for those, um, you know, the last decade or so, it's been pretty, pretty, been quite a nosedive. Um, what other, I mean, you've got grass that you're balancing through the year, you've got the seasonal fluctuation, you've got rainfall. What are, the, some, are some of the other things you consider or variables you consider when you're thinking about your your stocking rate, or well, I guess your carrying capacity, you know, your decision making about buying, about selling, I mean, do you buy, do you get other cattle on, do you, do, you, do you adjust? I mean, is, do you have a bit of a protocol you go through um, and what are some of the variables that you consider?
0: Yeah, we well, in our own business. We run a seed stock business, so we don't have a lot of flexibility with some of our um, animals, like, you know, whether we buy and sell them. So we probably try and run sort of 60 70% of our long-term average carrying capacity is our stud herd as such because um, I don't want to be necessarily, you know, as, as much as you sort of hate cows and love grass, I don't want to be necessarily dipping into those animals um, every time you know, we have to match our stocking rate to carrying capacity to change our stocking rate. So we have a sort of 40% buffer in there um, and that is a trading enterprise um, and we'll trade anything like, um, yeah, cattle, sheep, adjustment. Um, we haven't actually had highland cattle on just yet. Not necessarily, We I think the principles of it are great, but it just hasn't lined up for where we're at at this point in time. Um, but, you know, as a broader enterprise yeah having that flexibility is really important um we want to be running our seed stock business at commercial stocking rates and um you know under pressure to from uh, to improve the genetic um potential of the animals but we still also you know matching stocking rate to carrying capacity is uh really important uh, from a financial perspective too because if you start you know having to sell animals at the wrong time um, you can tear up some money really quickly, and then on the other side too, you've got to be able to put your foot to the floor. and And when you do have a good season, like you know, like we've just sort of come out of, um, you know, really, it really frustrates me when you hear people say, oh, "I can't afford to buy cattle or sheep," that you know they're too expensive. And it's like, well, you like, are you really valuing the the lost opportunity by not doing it? Um, and that's that's where you see the the real loss um is is that income that you that you've just it's just been it's just disappeared off the balance sheet.
3: Yeah it's just foregone. Yeah. yeah. Mm. But, so but you,
2: stock, you,
0: yeah you go. You, sorry, you go Michael I I was just gonna say like stocking rate is a very big profit driver. So you know for us um if we're doing an analysis on whether we should should or shouldn't be buying something, we sort of follow the KLR principles, but also too we we bring that back to a DSC. Like a gross margin per DSE really, so we know like if we run three more DSE a hectare, then what's that margin going to be, um, and how what's the profitability of doing that going to be because um, there's an element of risk associated with it, so um, I think the risk thing's really interesting, like certainly some of the businesses that I'm involved with from a consultancy perspective, um, you've really got to respect people's, what their attitude to risk is. And so my attitude might be different to Charlie's to to yours, Murray. And a lot of that, for my experience, has got a lot to do with the stage and age of the business that the people are in. Um, If you get someone, you know, I'm in my early 40s, you know, get someone 10, 15 years younger than me, um, their attitude to risk is a lot higher. They're happy to take risks. They haven't been built around the years um they you know understand the concept of debt but they haven't really had to feel it um and then you get someone out the other end who's you know in their 60s or 70s and you know they can see the end in sight and they're just trying to come in for a smooth leaning so their risk profile's very different um you know we're am probably our family business at the moment probably in the middle where we have to take a reasonable amount of risk to achieve some of the things that we're wanting to do but um you know i don't i've been in a situation where we've had to take on more risks than i've been happy with and it's not it's not a good spot to be. You're not. I didn't make good decisions at the time, and um, yeah, it's not a great opportunity. So, I think you, yeah, you need to respect uh, what everyone's risk level is at and where they're at in their stage of business.
2: Michael, um, just getting to I guess um, diversifying and differentiating. You know, um, I guess products. And um, I remember one of the one of the RCS adages was. Um, or certainly for some of the advisors, some years ago was you know it's not it's not diversification it's diversification that yeah. that often you know there's a thing about um, you might have sheep you might have cattle you know there's got to be some integration at least you know they're they're both you know um, uh, mammals you know there's there's some similarities and but there's some differences as well but when you sort of you know if you add another enterprise that even if it's another you know four legged animal there's there's a yeah, you know, there's a compounding management kind of requirement there. Um, how what are you what are your sort of general thoughts on the first divers, diversifying your know, enterprises within a within a farming business and kind of what are the things you would suggest people need to really think about when they're when they're considering it? you know?
0: Yeah, that's a great question, Charlie, because I think you know there's a real compromise there.'s there's the prince, the, I love the principle of sort of keep it simple, stupid. like that's really important. but then also, you know, from a nat- nature perspective, diversity is so important. We understand that. So oftentimes we're sort of thinking about let's increase our diversity, but we're only running one enterprise like one species, that, you know, bovines or whatever. So um, in our own business, we'd like to have some sheep and cattle. Um, the thing about, like, we're pretty strict on running things in as few mobs as we possibly can and the beauty of having sheep and cattle running together is you can always flick them out really easily if you do need to deal with one class and not the other. Um, so yeah, but then also too, you don't want to spread yourself too thin. So I think, you know, if you had a a real um, hatred of a, of a you know sheep or cattle, then I wouldn't necessarily be going and doing it. I, the principle that probably trumps them all is do what you really enjoy to start with. Um, but I think having that diversity, I mean, sheep and cattle and then you know what type of sheep as well there's a myriad of different tops in that in that yeah. um you know whether you want to go down a, a wool production or you know into the high-end uh prime lamb type of thing there's there's a fair bit of uh, diversity within that enterprise as well um so but in, in any of that if you're making any of those decisions um it's got to come back for me it's got to come back to that gross margin per dsc really um and I'm a big believer of, you know, working out that out on the back of the envelope, and if it doesn't work on the back of the envelope, well, don't worry about firing up the spreadsheet. But if, if you do, if you can get it to work, you know, in principle, then then you'll go in and look in in a, in a bit deeper analysis. Because
2: <clears throat> I guess, as you said, you know, things have got to work together, haven't they? There's, there's um, I guess, it, it's questions of infrastructure. It's a question of time. You know, do you love it? Do you hate it? Um uh you know and and what what we've found is that if is like the best use of those resources and in, in, again integrating like you're not necessarily going to use your cattle yards to run sheep through all the time if you've got a couple of hundred but it's it's like you know how much do I have to invest in because because buying the sheep or buying the cattle is is one part of diversifying enterprise isn't it but then you've got to get different gear it's yeah, a whole man. different mm. production production system that you've got to overlay there and sometimes they align, sometimes they don't um so yeah any other sort of tips on people considering you know why maybe it's a question of risk i mean you know people might some might argue that um you know adding a couple of enterprises spreads risk across more enterprises because the markets for one might be down and the other is up um but then you know there's also the the there's the risk <clears throat> of that of complication isn't it you know so there's financial risk uh mitigation but then there's also management risk is is kind of the you know the counter to
0: that. Sometimes one of the interesting things, and this data came back. This was in the you know early two thousands from the Holm-Sackett benchmarking data. That was um, there was more variation from within an enterprise than there is in between an enterprise. So, like my attitude is just be do that the one or two enterprises as well as you possibly can, rather than go chasing the next rainbow of you know the flat bone cattle or the uh, shedding sheep or whatever it is that uh, you know the flower of the month so to speak just be uh do what you really enjoy and do that really well um but don't be naive to it um surround yourself with some information um you know where you know our own business and certainly people we consult with um big advocates of you know like you're having a grazing chart like you're doing a monthly pasture budget do your monthly financial budget too And and so you know if something's going awry off-budget, then what are you? What are your uh, options to get it back onto budget? And we're seeing a lot of that at the moment. Like, um, you know, the reality is this time last year, you know, if you were lining up to sell feeder steers in the springtime, you know, you would have had a $2,000, 2200 in front of a 4,450-kilo 4, yeah. field entry steer, just for uh, picking an example. Um, you know, this year you're going to have a twelve or $1,300 um, in front of that. Um, and on the other side too you've probably got your interest bills probably gone you know if you've got a million dollars debt well it's gone from 30 grand to 60 grand so between those two things you've got a $150,000 hole in your business that you've got to um, plan for and and so yeah that's the reality of it Um, that's not a huge issue if you know what's coming and you know how to deal with it but it can be a real big issue if you get to May next year, and all of a sudden, you know, you don't have any money. So I think preparing yourself for that, um planning for it, and replanning and dealing with the current reality is probably really
3: prudent, Michael. That talk about the the numbers, and and you're right. But you know, the real challenge is actually cash flow, not numbers, isn't it? Or well, it's both. Mm. Well, cash flow is
0: king, no doubt. But then, um actually making a profit is probably more important than cash flow, but you still, yeah. the reality is you still need to cash flow things. But, That's right. Um, there's a difference between is something profitable? Yes. And then is it, you know, what's the cash flow implications of it? If an enterprise is profitable, then you'll probably work out a way to cash flow it. And, and you know,
3: your yeah, institution so. will
0: probably yeah. support you in doing that too. But um, so that, you know, I think you want to separate those two things out of, within reason but you still you know the reality is you still need to put food on the table so to speak so you do need to still have um, a cash uh flow uh positive enterprise and you know in our business that's why the trading comes in so well you know we 70 percent of our income happens on one day so for us that's you know that's a big risk in some ways um so we need to have that cash flow that's part of the reason why i sort of work off farm is that one the scale of the business allows me to do that but two that allows us to meet our commitments um you know on a monthly basis and um you know it's really important to have that turnover in a business especially when things you know margins are closing up um it's about just keeping the wheels turning over and and having some money coming in some money going out and the reality is you just want more coming in than's going out
3: michael one one point you made early on which sort of always intrigued me is You know, I mean, mean, I've only ever worked in food my whole career and, you know, it's always, no matter which way you look at it, um, every market at some stage comes back to the low point. Like, you know, whether you're in dairy, whether you're in beef, whether, you know, whether you're in potatoes or vegetables or whatever. I mean, ultimately, they all, you know, revenue comes back to a point and cost of production is such a critical thing. and. You know, um, the last few years, because revenue has been so strong, um do you think there has been a um, uh, less focus on cost of production? i mean is is that a reality, or you know, I mean, and I know that you know, so there's a lot of things that drive Um, looking for genuine alternatives? I mean, You know, have people been focused enough on that? Do you think, I mean, ultimately, we are in a commodity market. You can't get away from that. So even though revenue might be high, you've still got to remember that, don't you?
0: Yeah, well, the RCS benchmarking data shows that basically, you know, cost of production follows price. So unfortunately, our human intuition is that we'll spend what we make. um, Yeah. You know, yeah, you can see it around town, you know, the the land cruisers are rolling around when cattle prices are up or sheep prices are up and, um, you know, people probably have to pull their belt in a bit. Um, it's a really interesting from a human psychology what's going on there. Um, I think probably having some clear goals around what you're trying to achieve, where you do, um, you know, invest. So if you, if you have a, made a profit in your business, which, you know, hopefully that's what we're striving to achieve, um, mm. what do you do with that dividend? Do you reduce debt? Do you put capital improvement in? Do you um, you know, invest off farm? They're decisions that probably get back to what you're wanting to be doing to create wealth as a family and as a business. Um, so like there's not necessarily a right or wrong answer with that, but I think, you know, the principle would be, you know, with any profits is to distribute distribute that sort of one to reducing debt, or or if you've got a genuine capital improvement project that's going to get you a really good return um, then that's always a great spot and then you know from a diversity perspective as well um, having not relying solely on your farming business as your sole source of income is 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 a sound strategy financially because you know whether that's shares or off-farm investment or whatever else it is um yeah be able to provide income going to those streams is really important because um you know over time yeah as we know the, your potential to generate income from prime production will fluctuate with the seasons. Yeah. So no. Some of the things in that space that I think are really exciting into the future is, you know, this sort of carbon space that, you know, in, in our own business, we've invested heavily for us. You know, we, we spent $70,000 on baselining, which was a big investment for us. And we had to look at that, you know, very much, you know, what do we do? Um, do we pay debt? Down? Do we invest in you know with myriad of other things you could have spent that money on? We took the decision to to baseline our soil carbon. Um, I'm confident that that will pay returns in the long term. Like actually, one of the attractions to it was the prospect of it going for 25 years because it's like well, this is great to be able to put ourselves in a position to potentially create an annuity for 25 years. and then also, too, I think the reality is that we're getting closer to being in a point in time where we're going to have to account for where our carbon is. Whether we sell it or not is probably a different conversation, but um, it's just uh, we wanted to draw a line on the sand to say, right, oh, this is where we're at. So that was an investment decision that we made. Um, we could have, you know, yeah, reduced debt. We could have invested on some other uh, farm infrastructure, but that was a decision that we decided to take so, um and that was you know being able to use that sort of three-legged pot analogy and that that's going to allow us to really measure our ecology but also potentially provide an avenue for some off well not necessarily off-farm income it's still actually counted as primary production but you know and and for us even if it does go ahead like it won't be it'll be 2028 29 you know in and through the 2030s where that income will start
3: coming into our business so it's a long-term um, it, it, investment it's a it's a really you know when you sort of think about um diversification or differentiation or whatever actually in farm businesses, I mean, you're right, you can have lots of different things. you've got off farm investments, you've got other other income but but carbon's actually sort of a bit of both, isn't it? because in fact it's it's actually listening it's interesting listening to you talk about that and listening to a few podcasts recently, you know I mean, you farm well you do all the things, it's essentially a sleeping income that you're going to receive over time if you do things well today.
0: Yeah, and that's why, you know, at the end of the day, Murray, when we we were making this decision, that's why I felt so comfortable about doing it. Like, in some ways, we had to be a bit creative about what additionality we could do because of what we'd been doing over the years. And lucky there's a fair bit of flexibility in the methodologies to allow us to do that. But for us, we were thinking, well, you know, we're going to be doing a lot of this stuff. Um, there is an ideology around whether we should sell it or not, and, and we haven't made the decision yet. But that's For me, it's like, well, let's worry about generating that, and then at that point in time, then we'll make a decision then. Um, but we're going to be, you know, yeah, it's, we're, I'm hoping that that will be another stream of income into the future. Um, but probably more importantly, I feel that it's going to be a market access thing. but. Yeah, we I, I think that there'll be a point in time um, where our finances will say we want to show we I want to see your carbon accounting or or natural capital accounting and also um you know for market access we want to be able to buy a product that could be you know either carbon neutral or we're really aiming for carbon negative so that was probably gets back to that point of difference so to speak um, in the market like where beef producers like for us we're technically seed stock producers but it's still it's still really a commodity um you know there's there's a thousand and one anger studs around the around the place and so when we were starting our cattle startup it wasn't like the world needed another anger stud but Mm. we felt that we could produce an animal with different breeding objectives Um, we're very much focused on that grass-fed market so that's you know a, a differentiation for us um, we really, yeah, for us, we're sort of saying, well, look, in 20 or well, 15, 20 years time, um we won't be able to feed a lot of animals. So I just don't think that's gonna pass the social license and the nutrition and the carbon um accounting. I think that will be too much pressure come on that industry. So for us we want to make a point of difference and say, Well, look, we're gonna breed animals that can finish on grass. Um, and that's so within an existing beef commodity, so to speak, we're trying to differentiate ourselves. Um and provide you
3: know a, a niche in that market yeah that's really interesting
2: michael you mentioned before you're on the borderland to market and we're, we're we're members of the co-op um and and just getting back to that the wonderful things about that organization what they're doing what you're doing is you're working those two things together aren't you you know like there's we talk about market differentiation in terms of product and, you know, social license um, and also, you know, practice that actually um, uh, helps landscape heal, improves um, landscape function, all those wonderful things, improve carbon levels and soil quality um, at the same time as producing a really good um, product, you know, in in this this beef. Um, And, you know, the, for those who don't know, you know, land to market will, 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 as a member, you you um have them come out and audit your farm in terms of sort of soil quality and water penetration and all sorts of other different variables they measure um and then and then identify or verify a positive you know uh, movement or progression or improvement in your in your landscape. And then the other good thing is the is the seal, you know the land market, the seal that you that gets put on a product to say this product this is getting back to the social licensing um, has been produced on a farm that has been verified as 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 being um, you know doing good things for the environment. So I'm giving them a bit of a plug, but for good reason. That that um, uh, you know I think there's a big future for land to market because, as you say, people want to know where their food's from. That it's been produced ethically and and sustainably and all that sort of stuff. But getting back to the carbon thing, you do that. Your you know you produce a good quality product beef. Um, you can't help. But improve the environment at the same time, which is is a it's a pretty bloody good formula, really, isn't it? Well, I think that's what's so great about it is we're really, you
0: know, yeah, it's not it's it's the it's the way that you manage things that will change the outcome. So you know, it's not the cow, it's the how type of thing, and and you know, this cell grazing um, has been demonstrating to produce really great uh, ecological outcomes. Uh, it can be a low cost. Profitable beef enterprise as well, Um, you know. So that those both those things sort of really line up. And for me, I'm just very fortunate that I really enjoy that, and you know, it's yeah something I'm quite passionate about. So, like as an enterprise for us, like when we're making a decision on farm, should we be doing this or that? Well, it ticks a lot of boxes. It's it's profitable. um, It's reasonably low risk um, as long as you're confident with you know matching stocking rate to current capacity um, and what levers you can pull in that. Uh, and then also, you know, from an ecological perspective, it's it's allowing us to improve our land. So that, um, you know, yeah, when you're doing an enterprise analysis, you know, what what should you be running it for us? It ticks a lot of boxes. Um, but then, you know, I'll, I'll throw you a bone, Murray. Like I think the um, the Highland Pastoral uh, Beef enterprise really lines up well too, because that's allowing a producer to um, to probably take some money off the table, so to speak, so potentially sell some animals, um, get paid for them, and then also if they wanted to keep them on their own place and get paid a live weight gain. So that's a really great risk management strategy that um, producers have got at their disposal. Um, And then also uh, if you wanted to just be like a producer just to grow out the the animals, then um, you're getting um, a performance-based payment basically you know putting the ball back in your court as a grass manager to say well look how quickly can you get these animals to grow and you're getting rewarded for that rather than sort of just that flat rate of adjustment so it's it's offering a fair bit of flexibility there
3: yeah and look i think that's that's always been i suppose our our objective michael is to essentially you know we and i think the thing that we like about how it's a, how it's evolved with the farms that we're working with is that we've become a big part of their business well not a big part but an important part you know and so they're running their own enterprise next to our enterprise on on the one property, and that that I think when you think about sort of balancing risk or taking a different view on risk, doing what you're good at, which is essentially growing beef, but essentially playing um, in two spaces, it just allows you a different view of what your outcome's going to be in terms of profit, and you know that more and more that's that's important. Um, I don't think really, in anything that we do, talking as individuals, you know we whether it's your superannuation or whatever, I mean, you never put all your eggs in one basket, and that's you know that is a genuine challenge in a commodity market is how do you get around that, but still focus on the things that you're good at, um which I think is you know it, it's always intriguing to go and do something different, but it takes a lot of time. It's you know to your point, Charlie, you know it, it's about the asset, but it's about the resources to actually run the asset. so, yeah it is. I think it's, and I think when you when you see big changes in the market like we've seen in the last twelve months, it just brings people's focus back to these things. because your point, Michael, about you know that benchmarking, you know if if costs follow revenue, I mean, it's I can see how that happens and and clearly, sellers of inputs into that take advantage of that revenue because, there's less scrutiny, there's less negotiation. But in fact, when you really think about it, next time around, we should all negotiate harder because, you know, um there's no cost change on many of those inputs. It's just a it's just a price change.
0: Yeah, we found um we we did a lot of trading sort of from 2010 to sort of twenty sixteen when we started the cattle stud and um without you know and this is not to berate on our fellow farmer as such but the most profitable trades that we ever did were trades where we were selling back to a farmer um because they're probably not really knowing what their cost of production is like if you're selling into a jbs feedlot or something like that they know what they can they know what it's going to cost them to grow that beast out and they know what they're going to be able to sell that product for in nine months time or whatever they're they're not going to muck around where it's a farmer who thinks oh I've got 30 grand in my bank. I'll go and spend 30 grand on cattle, whether that's good value or not. Um, yeah. And so that we used to find those trades, like if you could, you know, PTIC or something like that, or buying cow and calf and splitting them, that that type of thing were very good trades um, because you sort of, you know, yeah, you'd seen those opportunities from an underpriced and overpriced perspective in that market. Um, whether, yeah, at the end of the day, sometimes you think, well, was that right or wrong? and And for us, yeah we were in a situation Market. where we were mm. splitting cows and calves onto a onto a truck um you know yeah and i that was fit for me i said no nah, i'm not going to do this trading anymore because like the trade was great we made a heap of money on paper but i was pushing these bobby calves from the back of this truck and it was like nah this doesn't not congruent with my values of, of you know how i want to be treating animals um and i suppose that's probably the other part of it now with you know where we've gone down the grass-fed um, path is that you know i don't really it's not an ambition to breed an animal to spend its last 150 days in a concentration camp i want to i want to breed an animal that's going to be able to you know have a happy life and one bad day um really and that's so that's sort of where we're wanting to line up
3: Hmm. interesting
2: michael um just looking at the time, I think uh, we might leave it there. That's been fascinating, and a really, um, there's so much more in that that we could expand on. Um, but it's been a very thorough, I guess, examination, and and certainly, you know, um, uh, you divulged a lot about your your thought process and and view on the world and farming and production and business. So um, it's been fascinating, and uh, really looking forward to getting this one out to um, out on the regenerative journey. In a few weeks' time, um, any, any sort of parting um, parting quips, Michael? Any, any quotes? Oh, oh, any, any quote you want to leave people with? Oh, <laughs> one thing that
0: I, it's not necessarily a quote as such, but um, begin with the end in mind as such. So, like, you know, for us, it's like, well, how much money do we need to generate for a year? Um, and then you work your way back. So if we want to generate, you know, one hundred and fifty thousand dollars in profit, then what you know we're going to pay thirty percent tax on that. And then so what's our gross product got to be? Uh, and work our way back. What gross margin do we have to create? What's our and then you know basically getting down to what's our total income got to got to be for the year to to give us a profit left over? Um, and that's a it's sort of flipping the modern. Um, um, Budgeting on its head in a lot of ways, but it seems to work really well because usually we, you know, we get we're happy with what's left over, but we actually put it around the other way and say, right, oh, let's write our profit target up on the wall and say, well, this is what we're aiming for, and then and how are we going to construct that? um, Working working our way backwards, which yeah, it sits well with me. It certainly RCS teaches that. It's it's coming out of the holistic management stuff as well. I think um, yeah, Bruce Ward, who I did my holistic management training with, he was a big believer of, um, you know, you can never starve a profit into a business. You've actually got to generate that turnover um, and to be, to keeping the wheels turning. Um, so yeah, that's, I think it's something that's really helped us. And and we've seen other, you know, other businesses do that quite successfully too.
2: Fantastic. Um, awesome. Well, Murray and Michael, thank you so much for your time again. Looking forward to getting this one out. Looking forward to catching up with you somewhere, Michael. Um, in the future, I'm sure we'll be running, we'll be crossing paths again as we seem to. And uh, Murray, we'll be catching up at the next little in between episode uh, soon.
3: Yeah, we will. Good on you.
2: Thanks, Charlie.
3: <laughs> thanks, Michael. No, that's been really good. Really, it's uh, it's always interesting to, to get different perspectives and hear people chat about stuff. So I really appreciate your time. Thanks, guys. Thanks.
2: My yeah, Well, Michael, pleasure. Thanks, Murray. Next week on Regenerative Journey, I speak with John O'Frew, uh, all the way from the South Island of New Zealand. Well, I was actually there with him in his on his farm in his house. Uh, went for a drive, had a wonderful chat. Um, inspiring. Uh, he'll be pleased if I refer to him as a young man um, doing wonderful things in, re- in the regenerative farming and just general farming space over there. And um, you are sure to be. Um, Enthralled and inspired by next week's episode with John O'Frew on the Regenerative Journey.
1: This podcast is produced by Rhys Jones at Jaeger Media. If you enjoyed this episode, please feel free to subscribe, share, rate, and review. For more episode information, please head over to www.charliarnett.com.au.